0: The only kind of situation in which we can um, allow for any kind of rules regarding um, spending around campaigns is if those rules are designed to serve anti-corruption purposes. That's a very hastily written per curiam opinion that has a whole bunch of problems. But this this structure that it set up, this two-step structure, unwittingly then set up a major fight for the next 40 years about the meaning of corruption. Because if the only reason you could justify, say, limiting how much somebody can contribute to $5,000 instead of unlimited contributions, if that's the only reason you could have a, if anti-corruption is the only reason, it really matters what corruption means.
1: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. My name's Toby Buckle. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. This is only our second ever episode, so it's a new project. It's been very, very exciting so far, getting it off the ground. And before we get to anything else, big shout-out of gratitude and appreciation for Everyone I reached out to who uh, shared this or invited friends to like our page, really, really grateful. Uh, We were able to have a pretty successful launch on Facebook, so that's awesome. If you haven't joined us before, the purpose of this podcast is to dig deep into questions of political values, political ideas, to look at their history, how they got to be what they are today, And then to ask, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for who we are and how we live our lives? Every week, this show will be bringing you an interview with a prominent philosopher or a public figure where we really get into the meat of some interesting questions. Now, last week I did promise that I would have a full lineup of everyone coming on the show. So, real quick, just before we get to today's episode, let me run that down. Next week, I will be joined by Professor Michael Frieden, who is generally regarded as the world's leading scholar of political ideologies. We're going to talk about political thinking, political ideology, and the politics of silence. The week after that, I will be joined by Callianne Mendoza, who is a lifelong human rights activist and campaigner, He was formerly field director of Amnesty International USA, and we talk about social justice concepts and movements. Professor Cecile Farb of Oxford University, who was our first ever interview, will be coming back on the podcast, and we're going to talk about the ethics and the morality of the death penalty, of torture, and of conduct during war. And after that, I will be talking with Dr. Rupert Reed, who is a Wittgenstein scholar, who has also developed a career as a radical environmentalist. He's got his own think tank on that subject, and he's run for office on that platform. And we have a really wide-ranging conversation about the current state of liberalism and where he thinks we need to go from there. As referenced in the first episode, in fact, I'll then be talking with Professor Roger Crisp, who is a moral philosopher at Oxford, and we talk about hedonism and utilitarianism. And then finally, I've been wanting to talk to someone about the relevance of John Stuart Mill today. So I'll be interviewing the author of Why Read Mill Today, uh, Professor John Skorupski. And I'm really looking forward to bringing you all of these conversations. I honestly, if I imagined a list of all of the most interesting people in the world, then these are all names that would be on my list. So. If you want to be kept up to date with all of that great content, please like and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and the links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, just politicalphilosophypodcast.com, all one word. Before any of that, though, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce the second ever guest to the Political Philosophy Podcast, Professor Zephyr Teachow. Zephyr is a professor of law at Fordham University. She's been a gubernatorial and a congressional candidate and is probably most known as an anti-corruption campaigner in American politics. She's also just a really cool person, as you'll hear. So just a quick introduction before we get into the interview. Zephyr graduated uh, Yale with a B.A., and then actually got two degrees simultaneously from Duke, a JD and an MA in political science. She's now associate professor at Fordham Law School, and she's the author of Corruption in America, from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. In 2004, she was the director of internet organizing for Howard Dean's presidential campaign, and in 2009, She helped found the Antitrust League. So I first got to know Zephyr in 2014 when she ran for governor of New York. She challenged the incumbent governor, Andrew Cuomo, in the Democratic primary. I was actually uh, working in state-level politics at the time myself, so I got to interact with her uh, a little bit at the time. And the context of that race was She was mounting a progressive challenge to a very centrist, some would say even conservative, incumbent Democratic governor, who was also a prolific fundraiser. So in spite of being outspent 40 to 1, that's 4-0 to 1, uh, Zephyr came in with a really strong showing and actually finished with 33% of the primary vote which was something that really surprised a lot of political observers at the time. She was also a candidate for New York's 19th Congressional District, which has been a Republican district for quite some time now. She was one of the few Democratic congressional candidates to endorse Bernie Sanders in the primary, and this was a favour he returned. She was one of the first candidates he endorsed, and he actually came up to New York to, to campaign for her. She ultimately lost that race, although, again, by a much smaller margin than has been the case in that district historically. And currently, she's involved in a lawsuit suing the Trump administration over conflicts of interest and taking money from foreign governments, essentially. Zephyr, if you like her message here, she's made a whole load of media appearances. She's pretty much a regular on TYT, The Young Turks, She's appeared on C-SPAN, MSNBC, and there's a pretty cool segment of her on The Daily Show. In this conversation, we talked about her lawsuit, we talked about impeachment, and we got into the history behind Citizens United and the history behind how we end up in this moment with so much money in our political system. We then really get down to what this means for us. How do we, as people of the left, think about ourselves as Americans and as citizens? And I actually got a lot from this conversation. There was a moment towards the end where Zephyr, you'll, you'll know it when it comes up, where Zephyr absolutely blew my mind with something in a way that's going to change not just how I think about this, but my political behavior, actually. So This was a really valuable conversation for me, and I hope it is for you too. And that was a little bit long as a preamble. Hope you'll forgive me. Now, it is my absolute pleasure to present to you Zephyr Teachout. joined today by Zephyr Teachout. Zephyr, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, I'm thrilled to be on. And, and congratulations, you've just launched this recently, is that right? Yes. Well, congratulations.
1: Thank you, thank you. Um, so for people who haven't heard of you, um, how would you, I'll have introduced you before we get to this point, uh-huh. but how would you describe what you do these days?
0: I am an associate law professor at Fordham in New York City, um, I have, I'm very involved in, uh, politics in New York. I ran for governor four years ago. I lost, <laughs> uh, although we did make a pretty strong showing against an incumbent governor. And then I ran for Congress, uh, uh two years ago and lost, um, in a fairly close race. And I'm, uh, since then I have, uh, as I always have been very involved in, in both, um, in, in local politics, in political organizing. So...
1: And you're involved in a lawsuit to do with some of the conflicts of interest with the Trump
0: administration. I can't, yeah. I'm one of the lawyers on um, uh, the lawsuit uh, against the Trump administration for violating uh, the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Rather, the emoluments clauses, there are actually multiple clauses. So I've actually had a longstanding interest in the Emoluments Clause, um, and it's uh, recently got a lot of attention um, because uh, President Trump is uh, taking foreign uh, money and benefits um, while he's uh, holding a federal office in in violation of the Foreign Emoluments uh, Clause of the Constitution. So we represent... Competitors to President Trump's hotels and other companies who um, are suing the president for for taking foreign money in violation of the clause. One of the
1: things I'm not an expert on, like the financial side of this, but one of the things that's kind of amazing about this is that it's ongoing. Because if you think about corruption scandals with past presidents, like say maybe White Water with Bill Clinton, comes to mind. Whatever happened there was—he was some sort of land deal before he became president. They investigated it, but he wasn't—that wasn't an active source of income for him, much less one that was from a foreign government. This is still happening, and there's
0: there's yeah. a number
1: of very easy things he could do to distance himself from it, which he just hasn't. It's kind of incredible.
0: Well, it is, and it—I uh, mean—it's profoundly destabilizing. So it's a problem um, both. Just the mere fact of having a president in ongoing violation of a central clause of the Constitution is itself destabilizing, regardless of the clause, right? It's a, a kind of thumbing the nose at the at law and the rule of law, and then it's also destabilizing in the sense that it calls into question every trade and diplomatic decision that the administration is making. For instance, uh, the you know president of the United States is getting rent, essentially, from the government of China. One of the largest tenants in Trump Towers in uh, New York City is the Commercial and Industrial Bank of China. Um, So they are paying their rent, which is going into Trump's pockets, while we are engaged in really um, critical and sensitive negotiations with China on both uh, military and diplomatic matters. And so it calls into question... Every one of those choices, it puts a question mark next to them saying, is this uh, because of or influenced by the personal financial relationships that Trump has um, instead of um, his view of foreign policy? However misguided, like you could, there's a separate concern that that Trump is um, incompetent, um, reckless, uh, careless, um, uh, poorly ill-informed. All those are very serious concerns Um, But this is a different kind of concern, a concern that his judgment is being corrupted. And, you know, I'm a a, a Democrat, I'm a populist progressive Democrat. And I think one of the things that is really important and we have been missing is that um, much of the response to Trump has been personal about his very serious personal failings. Our, Our lawsuit is not personal. It's about his violating the Constitution. But separate from that, as um, as citizens, I think one of the responses we ought have is structural. So, for instance, after Watergate, one of the responses on the left was to say, now we we have to rein in the imperial presidency because uh, what Richard Nixon showed is not merely that Richard Nixon is a crook, but he showed that we had really given too much power to the presidency. Now, several decades later, the power of the presidency is um, many times greater than it was uh, in the 70s. And I think it is time and sort of past time for for Democrats to see this moment not merely as an anti-Trump moment, but as a time to really rein in presidential power that has gotten out of hand.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the test case where you know those of us who were opposed to, say, Obama era programs or you know in terms of government spying, drones, stuff like yeah. that. The argument we made was even if we trust Obama with it,
0: what right. happens <laughs> yes. when
1: Sarah yeah. Palin is president? And actually, yeah. we got someone even worse than Sarah Palin. Um, as a as a random
0: going fantasy by some elites that that Trump is a real aberration. Um, you know, like he really is a unicorn, as opposed to him being a, um, both a result of serious problems in our, um, uh, in our uh, democracy that we have to fix and can fix, and also not a unicorn sort of getting rid of Trump with changing none of those structural issues, would likely lead to somebody different, but similar to Trump in other ways. So that, um, one, one, one
1: shudders to think of someone who had Trump's ideology but actual intelligence and competence to right, yes. it up. Right.
0: he's really not that competent, um, and and is able to do amazing damage without that. But I think that I think that's exactly right. That um, a more determined, you know, the, the questions about what Trump wants always seem to be quite silly. He he hasn't shown himself to be a person with wants in the the sense of desires that last more than a few minutes, um, except for the desire, like an amoeba-like desire for attention. Um, he doesn't seem to have you know, deep policy desires, by the way, which also makes him quite susceptible to corruption. But it's, um, I mean, I think Corey Robin has raised this really nicely in some writing, um, the, um, the, the sort of actual... How perplexing it is that some elites do not see this as a reason to call back to sort of pull back on executive power, but rather say, "Just let's let's just get rid of Trump."
1: Yeah. Before we get to the structural stuff, one final question on this: Do you think we're in impeachment ground or Twenty Sixth Amendment ground? Um,
0: so there's, I, I think there's three different ways um, to think about impeachment. Um, and I'll I'll tell you which one I am last. (laughs) One way is, uh, broadly, one way is to think about impeachment as truly a wholly political tool. Um, I mean, obviously, there's no real um, uh, legal constraint on it being used as a wholly political tool, but rather one way to think about it is that it ought be used when, for whatever reason... Um, the legislative branch thinks the president should be removed, that there need be no legal or moral failing on the part of the president. Rather, it is just a a purely political tool that can be used. On the other extreme, which is, I think, um, has infected a lot of uh, contemporary discourse, is a view that impeachment, there are um, sort of clearly identifiable impeachable offenses. And once we find that Trump has done X or Y or a president has done X or Y, then they must be impeached. For instance, um, like if he has obstructed justice, he must be impeached.
1: Which isn't, the constitution just says high crimes and misdemeanors or something. Right? It just has a very vague phraseology.
0: It, it, it's vague-ish. I mean, it does come out of a, um, <laughs> so it, it's vague, but it does come out of a, um, uh history from across the pond, um, where high involved some kind of betrayal of trust. So it's crimes and misdemeanors. So it's not that it's not the degree of like, whether it's a felony or not, it's whether it's a trust betraying kind of activity, whether it's something as against the state. For instance, you don't typically think of murder as a high crime or misdemeanor, even though it's terrible because it is not against the state. Um, So I think the the third option then, which I think is the the, the right way to think about it, is that it is um, a tool that can be used and ought be used when there has been a very serious violation, betrayal of trust of the obligations of the office um, and evidence of lawbreaking, in particular lawbreaking, regarding the office itself is really important, but not decisive either way in terms of deciding um, whether impeachment is appropriate. So, it, you know, the, the hard part about it is it requires judgment on the part of Congress, but an actively engaged judgment. I think that's the right way to think about it. And I think um, Congress should be engaged in an impeachment investigation Um, because there's enough reason to think that Trump is is betraying trust in all of these ways. But at a time when um, uh, the president and the administration have shown incredible disrespect for law and process and carefulness and seriousness and moral seriousness, I think that it's incredibly important for that impeachment um, proceeding and that impeachment investigation to happen with real moral seriousness and care and time, um, as opposed to sort of an immediate call for um, for uh, getting rid of him
1: so on the view that it's not any crime per se it's crimes that are specifically against the state or against the office if, um,
0: I don't if I've said that right <laughs> yeah I mean, but, it, it, but
1: then if, if we did get for instance hard evidence of collusion with Russia that would fall within that remit I, I,
0: I, I want to say yes and I would want to know the the details. <laughs> So I guess what i mean to say is that there are sort of technical violations of many laws. If, if
1: he were, if the Trump campaign had it, prior knowledge of the DNC email hack, say, I don't know that that is the
0: case. You're going to keep trying to trap me and, and like a good lawyer, you're being the lawyer <laughs> and say, what if this particular thing had happened? And I'm going to keep saying to you, um, that would be really important information. Okay. Let's me... um, but, but,, but it actually, the the precise details and context matters. And um I don't think it's a good idea to immediately jump to say, if x. and I, I I guess that's what I'm resisting, and what I think it happens in some of the discourse is like if we find like the smoking gun that he violated, um like there's a false statements law, federal law that says you can't give false statements to federal agents, a thousand and one, it sounds terrible it often is terrible, sometimes isn't terrible. Um, so people can be prosecuted for uh, you know lying to an FBI officer. Um and the nature of the lie will vary hugely depending on the context. And so I want to know about the nature of the lie. This isn't a you know guilty or innocent question. This is did this person in some serious way um, uh, betray their trust to the country? And so certainly at some point, and I don't know what the details are, but at some point of strategic, ongoing um, thinking about um, uh, trying to work with a foreign power to change the outcome of an election, yeah, that, w- that would constitute an impeachable offence. I just don't want to like answer the detail question.
1: <laughs> Let's go on to the structural stuff. Um, so one of the big takeaways that I got from your book Corruption in America was that Citizens United, which everyone has heard of, wasn't so much this thing out of the blue. It was the crystallization, in essence, of a drift that's been going on maybe the past thirty, forty years, towards defining corruption strictly as quid pro quo. In other words, it's only corruption if you're a lawmaker and I say, here's money if you do if and only if you do X. And then right. you go ahead and do it then yeah. that's corruption. But if I just donate a huge sum of money to you, um, just on the basis that I want to support a particular ideology or a particular type of candidate, that's not de facto corrupt. Did I did I sum that up correctly vis-a-vis Citizens United?
0: No, that's right. It really starts in, um, I would say, in, in uh, 1976 with Buckley versus Vallejo, um, which uh, was one of the first big cases that found that uh, uh, spending money in elections was protected uh, First Amendment speech. And what the, what the case did is it set up this um, way of thinking about cases involving uh, regulations of campaign spending. It said, we have two, a two-step process. Step one is we wanna figure out whether um, the First Amendment is implicated at all. And then if the First Amendment is implicated, the only kind of situation in which we can um, allow for any kind of rules regarding um, spending around campaigns is if those rules are designed to serve anti-corruption purposes. It's a very hastily written per curiam opinion that has a whole bunch of problems. But this this structure that it set up, this two-step structure, unwittingly then set up a major fight for the next 40 years about the meaning of corruption. Because if the only reason you could justify, say, limiting how much somebody can contribute to $5,000 instead of unlimited contributions, if that's the only reason you could have a, if anti-corruption is the only reason, it really matters what corruption means. So the court sort of wandered into a political philosophy fight, I think unwittingly. And then you see these 40 years of fights about what is and is not corruption. I think it also led to a lot of academic dishonesty um, that, was, that was the other
1: thing I got from your book, and I did a little bit of research on this. Generally, is if you you, you sort of have this idea that Supreme Court decisions are, are, are referencing all of these precedents all the way back to the founding of the republic, they're sort of just pulling it out the air, right? As far as a lot of this stuff goes, it's it's they say this is the thing, this is the principle, this is corruption, and then they define what corruption means. But there's not as much. Behind it, as you might expect, or am I am I being uncharitable?
0: No, well, I I think being uncharitable is correct. Um, so, uh, for instance, one of the things that you know really gets me worked up in the book is this shift to start defining um, corruption. That which is corruption is only quid pro quo corruption. So. I say that to you. And if I said that to any group of people, people would probably nod their heads. You know, it sounds Latin. It sounds very serious. It sounds like it comes from somewhere, right? (laughs) Um, Well, of course, quid pro quo, or maybe not of course, quid pro quo does not show up in corruption law before the 1970s. It's just not part of corruption law. It's a central part of contract law expressing the idea of the relative equality of exchange. I give you this in exchange for that. It actually enters the corruption lexicon, not through state court cases, trying to like deal with bribed local officials, but through the Supreme Court, which just has this, you know, sort of introduces, first introduces quid pro quo corruption and then refers to it persistently for the next 30 years, as if it's an established thing. And you'll talk to people, even people who disagree with Citizens United have a sense that um, there is a long tradition of understanding the core of bribery law as being about quid pro quo corruption, and they use quid pro quo as if it has always been a sort of language set tied to um, corruption, and it hasn't. Um, and, and what I think it does, and I, and I say this jokingly and seriously, is I think it gives people a sense of clarity, like, well, just using the Latin makes you feel like there's clear boundaries.
1: Yeah, if, if you've got a Latin phrase, <laughs> right. it must be right, right?
0: No, I'm serious, though, because because even those courts that do use the phrase quid pro quo, there's no clear contours of what's quid pro quo and what's not. And so um, as one of the Supreme Court, so one of the circuit courts quipped um, – uh, all quids are not made of the same stuff. You'd actually see in federal bribery law, which has in the last few decades incorporated the language of quid pro quo from the Supreme Court, not from statutes. <laughs> um, there's been a huge range of different ways to think about what is uh, what constitutes this very specific sounding, but in reality, um, confused sounding, in, in reality, hard to apply phrase. And the reason that matters is that some of the um, argument in uh, Citizens United and precursor cases. Um, it was most noticeable in a 2007 case when um, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, the last person with real political experience, had just left the court. Suddenly, corruption law changes after she leaves the court, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think she's sort of the least abstract, really understood what happens in politics. So one one thing,
1: just following on from that, that you mention in your book, is there's a view from the Supreme Court right now that essentially takes it for granted that politicians will be self-serving, essentially. Whereas anyone who's actually been around politicians for any length of time, not universally but politicians are incredibly ideological creatures for good (laughs) or for bad and i think that that, like people just assume that they're like businessmen and maybe in some cases i mean someone like romney is a businessman and seems to behave accordingly but actually politicians have really quite deep convictions sometimes good sometimes
0: bad Bad. (laughs) right and also they by the way right there's an idea of politicians is also far more speaking of competence you know as like competent uh, egotistical uh, uh, you know rational maximizers. Um, and in fact, they're they're far more of a mess for good and ill. <laughs> you know, like... logical and passionate and and full of mistakes and full of opportunities and driven by courage and fear and outsized fear and outsized courage and all those things come to bear. Now, I do think that once you have a societal vision of politicians as rational, um, egotistical, uh, you know, maximizers. It's, it, it can be self-fulfilling in as much as, um, uh, the sort of culture as a large expects you to serve donors and then parties start to expect that and that that then, uh, uh becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. But I do think the, the, um, I, I think the court, has different elements in it, but certainly there is an element of the court that um, has a very thin understanding of human nature and a very thin understanding of politics. And that um, part of the court was dominant in Citizens United and the precursor decisions. And and I think the, so it both misses the potential altruism and public, um, public focus and ideology of politicians and misses the incredible uh, corrupting power of things that aren't explicit exchanges. So it just, it it sort of misses the mark on human nature in two major ways.
1: So let's put a flag in human nature, but let's just try and summarize what we've covered. Um, So basically, the trend from the 70s through to today has been that the only restriction that the court will allow on money and politics is to prevent corruption, but corruption has been defined as an explicit bribe. I am giving you something in exchange for you agreeing to do something else. But one of the things you show or you sort of bring to our attention is that there was a very different idea, a much broader idea of what corruption was at the founding of the of the Republic and through most of American history, in fact. Could you outline that for us?
0: No, no so, that, so that's exactly right. And, um, uh, you know, a good deal of the book is focused on... Uh, the a few different parts of the way in which the framers of the American constitution thought about corruption. One, um, which is prior to everything else is just how much they thought about it, that, that it was seen as a really essential, fundamental, ongoing threat. I sometimes think of it as they, they saw it as a, um, as like, this is going to be the game of whack-a-mole. We will be playing as a country forever. (laughs) Um, And we have to always keep alive an alertness to the the multiple ways in which um, self-governing polity can be corrupted. And corruption is the fundamental threat of a republic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think that's really important to raise. Maybe that seems obvious in 2016, but in 2010, when I started writing this book, uh, the Supreme Court, I felt like, was often treating corruption like it was like a problem of people stealing too many metal pipes, you know, like a, a small criminal law problem, not a major structural problem. And and one of the, um, I think, great wisdom of the framing era is this sense that, as Hamilton said, you know, at the Constitutional Convention, we erected every practicable obstacle um, to corruption. And, and And you sort of see this in this this hot summer in Philadelphia that as a question comes up, whether it be um, how the electoral college is gonna work or um, uh, the size of the Senate or uh, the number that took to veto, every question went through the ringer of what structural system is more or less likely to lead to corruption. Now, to make sense of the, the process, so number one is, is just how obsessed they were with this as the threat. Number two is that they um, had an understanding of corruption, which is that when those in public power use that public power for private, narrow, selfish ends, they weren't talking about explicit bribes. Uh, I mean, there are a few examples. And in fact, there weren't criminal law statutes against lawmakers bribing uh, being bribed at the time you know it was sort of taken for granted that, that kind of behavior might occur but we could protect against it and, and you know, you said we were going to bracket human nature but i'm going to keep bringing you back to it because i think all these questions are no, always no, i
1: said put a flag as well, because i knew we were going to revisit it
0: we're coming back to the flag so um i mean i i frame it as uh you know the the um and this is so unoriginal, um, any historian of the time, not any, there's some debate, but we'll tell you how important Montesquieu was, um, that that they are very much, um, uh, students of Montesquieu and Montesquieu was very much known as the anti Hobbes as sort of the, um, you know, rejecting Hobbes's understanding of human nature. And so the, the key difference that I see is that, um, Hobbes, in a far richer way, by the way, than modern neoliberals (laughs) are more complex and interesting and compelling, but saw people as fundamentally um, egotistical. Um, Montesquieu and the framers saw people as containing within themselves the possibilities for great uh, benevolence, possibilities for great greed and selfishness. And the task of structure building was the task to build structures that made it more likely that um, our capacities of public love would be cultivated and our tendency to greed would be discouraged. So it's not an idea that all people are angels nor an idea that all people are devils. It's rather an idea that all people have angels and devils within them. And the job of constitutional design is to make it as likely as possible that the, that the um, non-corrupt public orientation would be supported and cultivated.
1: So a lot of people will say the, the, the quote about we, we have a constitution that's made for a system of devils is actually a simplification of what, certainly Montesquieu, which is where we get the phrase separation of powers, what he yeah. thought he was doing, but also of what the founders thought that they were doing. In that yeah. if you take Hobbes, Hobbes actually didn't believe corruption as you described it was possible because he thought people were always private-facing in a certain sense. And so the idea that you could be deterred from being public-facing is kind of like a no-brainer.
0: Makes sense, yeah. There's this, do you know Adrian Blau? I don't think I do. Yeah, he's a, um, I don't remember which school he's at. Uh, But he had this phrase that really grabbed me when I started researching it. he said, it's not that Hobbes and Montesquieu disagreed about corruption. It's just that um, Montesquieu's or or Aristotle, actually, you know, it's just that Aristotle's understanding of corruption was incoherent to Hobbes. It just it actually doesn't make sense, given his definition of human nature. And to take the sequencing back, you know, Hobbes is the anti-Aristotelian and Hobbes calls, even talks about the babbling politics of Aristotle. And then Montesquieu is the anti-Hobbes. Uh, I talk. think
1: there's a wonderful Hobbes quote where he says nothing can be said more incoherently than the way it was said by Aristotle, which is <laughs> exactly. how these guys did smack talk back in the day. But on Montague's thing, it's not so much that we're going to design laws assuming people can be bad, it's mm-hmm. we're going to design laws assuming that they can be both good and bad, and we want to get good more often. And that's a pretty actually key distinction on how you justify our system of separation of powers checks and balances it's not so much guarding against the bad which it is it's also the drawing out of the good and we talk a lot about the guarding against the bad but not the drawing out of the good right
0: that's exactly right and there's this sort of persistently misquoted or mischaracterized um, madisonian quote where he says you know uh we had a i'm just gonna slaughter the paraphrase but (laughs) we had a nation of angels that we'd have no need of government and people then, uh, infer from that. We have a nation of devils, but of course isn't what he's saying. (laughs) He's saying, right. This is something extremely different and and nobody is more, um, uh, consistent than Madison on the, um, need to uh, cultivate good character, um, and public facing character and to dissuade, uh, dissuade uh uh greed and a lot of what they talk about and that really flows from this is a temptation and so the language of temptation is everywhere because temptation really matters if you have this view like if you have a view of feeling good or bad there's the people who just won't be tempted and the people who will always have that extra drink or whatever but if you sort of see human nature as deeply flexible and you're compassionate about those who might be tempted um, then you say, okay, well, we want to keep temptations, we may not be able to get rid of them, but make them really complicated and difficult. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of hurdles you have to jump over to um, do that uh, dangerous or tempting thing. And, um, and I, I, I actually think that that's, it's, it is a compassionate approach because it's saying we are all subject to temptation. So instead of testing us at all times, why don't we just make it really hard to um, um, work for the king instead of working for our constituents?
1: The <laughs> other thing that comes along with that view that what a republic is doing is both blocking the bad and also like uh-huh. incentivizing the good is it's not just structures, it's not just there is a law against you taking yeah. money, it's like a values and an ethos. So, to use an example, I think I, I think I got this from one of your talks actually is I can imagine a situation where I would be purely rational self interest in it for my own, so like a wage negotiation, say, yeah. I would not be thinking about what's good for the company there, I would be thinking about me, but then say if I sat on a jury there's no part of my mind if I'm deciding whether to sentence someone to prison or not that will be thinking about my own financial gain. And part of it is, you know, there's no mechanism for me to do that or there shouldn't be. But the other part is there's a whole symbolism and culture and like I've watched 12 Angry Men and I thought it was inspiring and all of that, you know what I mean? That's Going on so that even before I get to the structural bit, I've been orientated a certain way by the time I sit on the jury.
0: Now, that's exactly right. And it's why, um, I mean, history matters so much and calling on the better parts of our history matters so much. And and, I mean, a fantastic example. But if you sort of wander into a jury constructed by um, uh, the ahistorical neoliberalism, you would expect that jurors would be Uh, If not told otherwise, would be sort of sneaking out and seeing how this verdict might affect their stock prices or whatever. And and
1: you could also imagine in a world conducted by like a pure, pure rational self-interest neoliberal or as psychologists call them sociopaths, you would get (laughs) the best result from the jury. By having some sort of financial incentive scheme right. whereby like the better jurying they did the more we paid them but common right. sense tells you that's just a horrible idea right
0: right that's that's that it, it will only go lead to something terrible and it also you know to sort of reinforce your point it underestimates our capacities when we are engaged in solving a public problem and one of the sort of analogies that i use in the book is this idea that we like as a society uh, with few minor exceptions, except as unproblematic and normal um the idea that people um care profoundly for their family and d- that doesn 't mean they 're self harming you know that they they don 't um that they will do anything for their family they 'll care deeply for their family and still stay healthy, like the idea that they can care for others. And that we understand that society has structured ourselves in a way that supports this and encourages good parenting and being, uh, you know, a good spouse and a good member of a larger family unit. And that seems wildly unsurprising to us when somebody um, puts their child's interests at the forefront. Well, a lot of the ways in which we think about a good public servant are very similar. Like a good public servant is not starving themselves. They're healthy and they hopefully enjoy a glass of wine if that's what they like to do and good music and friends. But that at the, at the heart of their decision-making around their job will be what is, you know, what bridge, uh, what roads, what uh, school system is going to serve the public. I know my mind I know I am imperfect. I know my, information is limited, but I'm going to do everything I can to serve this public. And that emotional state, that orientation of the spirit, is something we're really comfortable with families. And I think historically, certainly in the founding era, and I would argue up to the 1970s, and I would actually argue that like man on the street up to the current day Mm -hmm. is something we expect, um, rightly expect of our um public officials and feel betrayed when they don't bring that.
1: do you think that it is just as strong with the proverbial man on the street or is there some sense in there's any number of sort of roles we assign ourselves we ask ourselves am i being a good husband we ask ourselves am i being a good employee right yeah um do we ask ourselves as much am i being a good citizen citizen Or am I just romanticizing the past
0: here? I was trying to sort of explain the feeling of betrayal that so many people have. And you wouldn't have a feeling of betrayal. You might have anger, but not betrayal if you didn't think public servants were supposed to be Mm public-oriented. But in terms of people's own role as citizens, I think it's a huge loss. Um, And uh, I think um, there is still some of the uh, civic focus... Um I, and in some ways a remarkable amount. Um as a as a politician, I can tell you that when you get in a group of fifteen people just sitting around talking, um, the question very quickly can turn to um what should we do? You know, a Rentian idea of politics. Not like what should we do that will most serve me, but what should we as a collective do? That, that it is a um It's a a language, it's a conversation that people are very comfortable with in certain settings, like when you get 15 people together and say, "Okay, representing this district or you know, um, and I think that's from, you know, hundreds of years of history. And I think that history matters. I think that um, civic culture is really hard to build and we shouldn't throw it away that easily. Um, At the same time, I think we're, we're losing it.
1: Fast. (laughs) so how do you view that specifically in the moment we're in on the left where i view myself as like fairly towards that end of the spectrum Uh i do see a lot of on the left at the moment a sort of gnome chomsky view of america that it was born in slavery and genocide and it's been all Uh bad all the time since then right through Mm -hmm. to the present that that we were talking about this before we came on the market is an exploitative and evil force right and all those things of course have those qualities but they see no upside to it and i think in the view of many of my fellow lefties like the end of the america and the end of capitalism would be a thing to be welcomed and i can't i can't quite avail myself of that view but i also can't avail myself of the chest-thumping patriotism on the other side how do those,
0: we, those, how do we na- those aren't the only two options and this I, I mean, mean, hope, one would hope <laughs> so I have so many <laughs> responses to that ah where to start um, on uh, I, I think that's not inaccurate for some parts of the left and it tends to make me really mad um, and uh, so maybe first I should say where I come from I'm a, I'm a Langston Hughes patriot uh, Langston Hughes in this amazing poem let America be America again in the 1940s um, uh, writes this, I think, uh, really powerful exhortation about a relationship to history where he says, let America be America again. Let it be the dream. The dreamers dreamed, um, America was never America to me. And then he goes on and talks about what the dreamers dreamed, you know, that no man would be crushed by one above. Um, and then he says, and often actually it stops, like the quotation stops with, America was never America to me, which fits into the story you're telling. But that's not where Hughes goes. Where Hughes goes is, I promise America will be. And what I think he's doing is he's, um, it's a beautiful poem, but he's also um, rejecting two different versions of history, both of which are extremely toxic. One is, uh, it was perfect before, and we should try to regain it. Like, I don't want to live in the 1850s. I don't want to live in the 1950s. This is terrible.
1: If nothing else, the phrase surgery without anesthetic should like, <laughs> kill any desire for that.
0: Right. Um, but also, he rejects the radical rejection of the better parts of American history. And um, I, I won't speak for Hughes, but I'll speak for myself. Is that um, in some degrees, this is, to some degree, I think, and this is where the, my my own <laughs> frustration comes from. Um, I want people to understand how bad it can get, like what a totalitarian regime looks like, what it looks like when you really don't trust um, uh, even imperfectly um, uh, property rights or each other, or don't believe that even imperfectly you can touch the levers of power, what it feels like if you close the window because you're worried that you'll get arrested if you speak negatively about the king. And um, as Uh, This is a way in which, like the view of human nature, some see it all bad and some see it all good, and I tend to think it's much more flexible, that history is also flexible, but there certainly is a strong tendency towards oligarchy, um, and that the rejection of a tradition that has extraordinary egalitarian strains within is incredibly dangerous. It's like bombing Libya and expecting that Libya will suddenly become a democracy. Um, so, I think that rejection, this is the way in which I am a deep small c conservative, mm-hmm. um, that rejection um, can be extremely careless and selfish, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: and it's, yeah, I think when you view the world as so oppressive and so bad, and I don't think either of us are denying many of the, the, the grave injustices oh, in America so today, when you view it as that bad, you kind of close a door mentally to it getting worse. And there's no law yeah. of history that says the American Republic will survive. And no. Most experiments like that, actually the historical odds it's are against us. I 100
0: years, right? yes. Yeah, so, so I think, right, I think it actually betrays um, either cruelty or a real naivete about how bad things can get.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> there is a view now that, like, oppression of women, minorities, whatever, is as bad as it's ever been. And I think when I say... No, it's not. What what people hear me as saying is, is is as belittling or not taking seriously suffering today. Whereas actually, I'm more saying I'm saying understand how just appaul- mesmerizingly appalling it was and has yeah. been in other places in the world and is to some degree still. You know,
0: I think one of the greatest American leaders today is a guy named Reverend Barber, um, who uh, you know openly scoffs at anybody saying this is the worst it's ever been. It's like, come on. (laughs) You just look at like 1963 in the, the, you know, South. And you tell me this is worse than that. (laughs) Like there's so many times that are so much worse. Look at 1899. Look at, you know, there's so many times that are so much worse. Look at uh, 1845. Um, So this is, these are horrific Times in American history. And I think it's hard but necessary to both acknowledge the horror and pull out the wisdom um, that accompanied that horror. Um, unless you think, right, unless you have a sort of a deep and I would say naive progressivism that the arc of history bends towards justice all by itself and if we just sort of get out of the way. And and I actually think that a lot of my generation, I, I'm probably 15, 20 years older than you, um, a lot of my generation, left and right, was um, overly influenced by the um, fall of the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. which led to a kind of 11-year triumphalism.
1: There's a phrase which really irks me. I've worked on a lot of social justice issues, like uh, uh, gay rights, gay uh, rights, uh, obviously I've been very passionate and done work in sort of anti-racism and so on. And there's a phrase that always, it's always bent well, but it kind of annoys me, is be on the right side of history. Which uh-huh. is like that there is a side of history to be on. And oh,
0: that's that, it. <laughs> that, 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 like, <laughs> Yeah. Why does it annoy you?
1: Well, because it assumes that it's inevitable.
0: It assumes oh, yes. we're
1: going to just, yeah. you know, we're going to get to the place where we just erase homophobia and racism and sexism and whatever. And we can. I do think you know, maybe not in our generation, but where do you want to be in 500 years? You can imagine a world, but you can also imagine a world where a nuclear bomb goes off over Manhattan tomorrow and then yeah. that's just a complete descent. you know.
0: No, it's one of my pet peeves. It's not quite as strong. And and I understand why people use it. So I, I think pet peeve is the wrong, it's just a noticing, hmm. is um, that people use the phrase still all the time or even in, like even in in... in it's 2018, and people are still X or Y. Right, because it's the same uh,
1: concept of, you know, this historical... very
0: concept. hegelian, like, you know, like we are, you know, this is... And Fukuyama was much smarter than a stereotype, but it is this idea that we're, we're like, we're moving towards a stable state. And yes. I think we can beat, um, absolutely, I think we can live in a society where we have a, um, where we beat homophobia where we have a maybe not absolute conquering racism, but uh, really substantially change structural racism and, and attitudes towards race, all those things. And, and I believe that that will not be a steady state.
1: Right. <laughs> well, if, if there's one good thing I could say for Trump, one good thing, it's I've always held this view that the myth of progress is just that. But I think at some level, subconsciously, some sort of like Fukuyama type thesis was residing in my bones. Oh, and yes. then when you get that year where, where Trump wins and Brexit wins, yeah, I was quite alarmist and it did, I mean, the worst has not happened yet, but it did really feel like sort of capital H history reawakening, you know? And, right. you, it, right. and it really just shook me. It was like, no, no, at some sense, I was assuming a stability to the American republic and sort of yeah. constitutional representative democracy that, that, is, that, is, that is, that's criminal that isn't there.
0: Yeah, you know? and which, which goes really to the question that you've raised a few times about the role of the citizen. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, maybe, um, unless you're Hannah Arendt, who I'm very partial to, <laughs> but maybe... Uh, it would be great to be in a world where citizens didn't have to work that hard, you know. But I just don't think that world's ever going to come around. Like that, the um, that that it is a persistent job, and that we can live in much better and much worse times. That both of those are possible. But it but the much better times are do require. Um, that not only elected officials, but that that people take themselves as stewards um, I mean, in a very serious way, in a way that, you know, they take their job as a jury.
1: Yeah, so can we close with that as an idea? Is, you know, we're not just on the basis of this conversation suddenly going to change the structure of the American <laughs> government? I mean, maybe, but one can hope, but... <laughs> What, you know, if if we do get a good audience for this, what what can people do just more like in how they think about their role, how they think about themselves? What cognitive shift could we, would we be advocating for people in their role as citizens? I guess firstly, the first thing I'd say is think about your role as a citizen in the same way as you think about, am I a good employee? Don't, Don't take being a good citizen less seriously than being a good employee. But what else? Do you have anything to build
0: no, on No, I think that's absolutely right and really hard um, because I think to be a good citizen – I, and, and I actually take your point is that there's multiple ways to be a good citizen. There's not just one way. But for a society to survive, you need a lot of citizens who are engaged in local politics. <laughs> um, and that doesn't mean that you can never engage in the most exciting Senate race in the world that's – 10 states away, or in the National Day of Action, that um, is an incredibly important political statement, but those alone, even multiplied times a million, will never be enough if you do not actually have local people involved in local politics.
1: <laughs> what does that look like? Should we be going to town halls? Should we be, what, what, what should we be doing? Our well the
0: first step and and this is this is a brain breaker for me but um because i i both really believe it and i don't see how it happens so is a puzzle is um is just just to actually be reading local news right. um and like actually choose to seek that out uh, and you shaking your head. No, I, I I'm guess.
1: shaking my head. Sorry, people who are just listening to the audio, because yes. I'm realizing I'm guilty of this myself. Like, right. The no, ratio of, <laughs> of like national news to local news that I consume, is it's got to be in the high 90s, right?
0: Absolutely, right. So we sort of all are expecting somebody else to do the local work. Right. And um, not all, but I, th- I think this is, this is one of the real puzzles. And I actually think a real... Question then is, is this possible without devolving more power to the local level? Because I actually do think that uh, learning often follows power, if that makes sense, as opposed to exhortation. So, one idea is like people will learn more if they are told to learn more. And another is they'll learn more if they're in a position where their learning matters or they feel like their learning matters. So, it's, it's something I think about a lot. I don't know all the answers on this one. Um, but the other thing I think is getting involved in groups. That it's very, it's not impossible, but it's hard to be a citizen alone. Um, So, and and groups are like, they're like work. They're, they're annoying. There's that one person who's always bringing up that crazy topic. And they're also. But also just become, here's what I would
1: add of my own. If we're, if we're we're making like the Toby and Zephyr guide to being a good citizen, (laughs) is just take out a membership in something of a group yes, you agree I, with. Like yes. if you can give a little bit of money, give like your 10 bucks a month or something, but just, just have them have your name down. That's a start. I you know. have
0: your name down. And, and so if there's some, there's a way in which the far right and the far left have joined, it's in a um, individualism yeah. um, that if, and, and a sort of seeing group membership as expressive as opposed to a, a job, <laughs> So if you see group membership as expressive and your group does something annoying then you quit. If you see group membership and I'm talking in part about the Democratic Party here, these us, right? If you don't see it as like this is it's not the Democratic Party expresses who I am, it's that I think it is absolutely essential for the institution of the Democratic Party to exist. I'm going to do every damn thing I can on a local level to help make it really work.
1: Something else that irks me with the left is the sort of they're both just as bad thing. They're really not.
0: No, no, they're not even close. No, the the, um, depth of um, cynicism and cruelty of the modern Republican Party and what the party has already been able to do, um, but what it can do uh, in terms of people's like the sickness that people will feel like literal sickness The physical pain, the loss, the despair that the Republican Party is wrecking on people is totally unacceptable. And I have my fights with leadership in the Democratic Party. I'm not shy about them, but I think it's really important to be, as you say, I think we're agreeing on this, to be inside something that we are trying to improve instead of outside something. I was kind of as a final thought
1: one common theme throughout this conversation which i wasn't sure i expected to come up but that's interesting is how poisonous this idea of rational self-interest is it kind of gets into everything doesn't it so like <laughs> you're right this idea of like not this is sort of like the bowling alone thesis but the not being part of the club not being part of the group it is a sort of like uh, yeah as an egotistical wealth maximizing machine there's not much to be said for for going to you know your your local clean up the streets campaign there really isn't but that's not all that's going on in what it is to be just a person much less a citizen
0: yeah i get fascinated with this little tool called uh, ngram have you ever seen it
1: yeah it, the, 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 you, you explain it.
0: it it it's so bad it's just a but it, it roughly, terribly, in, inaccurately tracks the use of language in books over time. And the other day I went and looked up, and so tracks like, how often is the word, um, uh, just pick two words that are similar to each other used, entrepreneur versus small business owner. Unsurprisingly, rise the use of the word entrepreneur just as small business drops. That's one of my, but okay. But anyway, to, our, to this conversation, I went and looked up courage, and incentive. And um, as you might expect, courage has declined over the last hundred years in usage and incentive has vastly grown because uh, grown. they both they're not like theoretically incompatible, but they both sort of start with fundamentally different ideas of what a human is like if if courage is part of your daily conversation you then think of your jobs differently and if incentive is part of your daily conversation then you think of your jobs and your roles differently cuz incentive not necessarily but sort of hints at a kind of mechanistic human understanding whereas courage is like we have these capacities <laughs> so you might we might tap into them
1: could we add that to our list of being a good citizen read the local news yes in group see yourself as a citizen and on the other side, stop seeing yourself or stop seeing yourself solely as just a, just a wealth maximizing machine. That's part of what you are, but it's not the only part and it's not the most important part.
0: No, I sometimes, yeah, no, that's exactly, no, that's exactly right. It's, it's that it's, it's not denying it either. It's not denying that like people want to make a little money. That's fine. It's just that there's a thinness, this simplicity, I was
1: um, um, talking about this to Michael Frieden, uh, Oxford professor of political theory. Yeah. He used the word emaciated as a conception of human nature. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah, sort of
1: starved somehow.
0: And, and, and even though you said earlier you, there's not much in rational self-maximization you know, to go to join a cleanup crew, um, there is a kind of flourishing um, and satisfaction that comes over time. But that's not why you should do it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> there's a sort of
1: deep self-interest in that like if i'm on the jury i am in a certain sense yes i want to get the right outcome because i don't want to go to bed at night having condemned an innocent man but that, that's a much deeper sense of self-interest than like i'm doing it to get my stock shares up you know
0: yeah. and when and I, I do really love the jury example because on a jury it is as if people just forget this other story of what what they are supposed to be for 10 days or two weeks. And then when you don't have that there, a whole bunch of richness can come in to replace it. The confusion, you know, uh, anger. I mean, it's not, it's not simple. It's not a simple, it's not simply replaced by a thin idea of virtue either, but it's a much more complex and rich uh, human character that comes in to take that place.
1: Should we pause it that?
0: We'll pause at that. Great talking to you.
1: Thank you, dear audience, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you want to follow Zephyr, you can do so on Facebook and Twitter. It's just at Zephyr Teachout for both. On next week's show, I will be joined by Professor Michael Frieden. Michael Frieden is generally regarded as the world's leading authority on political ideologies. He's the author of almost two dozen books on that subject, as well as the history of liberalism, on human rights, on social theory, on many topics, and we discuss his latest book, The Political Theory of Political Thinking. And in the show, we ask one Deceptively simple question. What is politics? What does it mean to say that you're thinking politically as opposed to thinking socially or psychologically? Not as easy as it sounds, right? So if you want to hear that, you know, like and subscribe. My only request of my audience would be, if you are enjoying the show, or there's a particular episode you really like, please share that episode as they come out. Uh, We're a new project in search of an audience, so anything and everything you could do to help us find that audience is much appreciated. With that, thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week. Well, I won't see you, but you'll hear me. You know what I mean. Join us next week for Professor Michael Frieden.